Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth. We are in chapter 6, and uh, we will hit verses 1 to 6 ever so briefly again and then begin to treat uh, subsequent verses. But before we get into that, I did just want to continue to welcome all of you out there who are tuning in by way of podcast in the countries of Mexico, Canada, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Portugal, France, Spain, Italy, Croatia, India, uh, South Africa. I see all of you on the grid. And from one week to the next, it just continues to humble me to see that you are taking time out of your busy schedule to join me here on Seeds of Truth as we seek to go deeper and deeper into our Christian and Catholic faith, whatever the context might be. Right now, we are going through Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth, and on Thursday, I am setting aside an evening to answer your questions. We have hit so much subject matter, so much subject matter over the course of the last 10 years that I can't even begin to recapture all of it, but I I say that because I did receive a recent email about Seeds of Truth and what it has been about over the last 10 years, and the observation was made, there's so much out there. It seems like it never stops. And yeah, you're right, it never stops. Even in what we have addressed in these 10 years, we have only begun to scratch the surface. You see, my friends, the deeper we go, as Thomas Aquinas said, the more we realize how little we know. And the more we realize how little we know, the more we desire to go deeper. And this is the beauty of the Catholic faith, that it is filled with so much mystery, that it is filled with the inexhaustible reality that we can spend a thousand lifetimes plumbing the depths of the mystery of God. And even in those thousand lifetimes, we will still only be scratching the surface. And this is not an embellishment, you see, because we are dealing with that which is infinite. God is infinite, my friends. There is no end. So yeah, here we've been on air for 10 years, and we've talked about a lot of things, a lot of things. And at different points within those 10 years, I have reinforced some of those things. You know, if you are a faithful listener, I love to talk about certain things. But understand this. I've only begun to scratch the surface. I have only begun to scratch the surface. So (laughs) with that, let us turn our attention to Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth. And I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 to 6 again, make a few more points, and then I want to talk about, before we get into verses 7 to 11, the importance of of theology of the body, because 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 certainly has us and should have us thinking about theology of the body. Okay, chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against a brother, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? 
Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more matters pertaining to this life? If then you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who are least esteemed by the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no man among you wise enough to, to decide between members of the brotherhood? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Whew. In verses 5 to 6, Paul concludes this section by pointing to the real issue. You are all brothers and sisters, and your ability to settle your own issues should be an example to the secular world. But alas, you are taking your spats to the secular world, Paul says. That is a scandal. Why is it a scandal? Because the world cannot say, see how they love one another. The world says, see how they fight. See how they go back and forth with one another. See how they box with each other. My dear friends, let us resolve our disputes as we ought in the wisdom of God. All right, what else here? What stands out in this section is how Paul considers the new Christian family to behave. Here we should uh, pose the all-important question. How much does our being a Christian and our belonging to this Christian family affect our identity? I mean, our identity as citizens of this country is reinforced at every turn. The media, traffic lights, our taxes on income, or even sales. Everywhere we turn, we are reminded that we are citizens that belong to this country. Could the same be said of our lives as it relates to how we go about living our life within the Christian context? If Sunday worship is the only reinforcement we receive for our Christian identity, brothers and sisters, we are going to fall short of the kingdom of God. This is why we need to tap into other means. Prayer, scripture reading and study, parish ministry, retreats, faith-sharing groups rooted in truth. Let your life, my friends, be one Christian reinforcement after another, that over a period of time, over enough retreat ministry, scripture study, and the like, what we'll find is when we go into the workplace, we're not so caught up in our spats, but in the desire and need to reconcile with one another. We'll stop the silly behavior of suing and going to the secular world to solve our problems, but going to the one who fashioned the world to solve our problems. Huh? You see, my friends, we need to reconcile ourselves with God so that we might be reconciled with our brother or sister in Christ. I was just talking about points that I reinforce here from one day to the next and one program to the next, and there's no one greater point than that baptismal vocation that is before us each and every day, that vocation to live in God for other, that vocation to establish our identity of Christ so as to better understand our task for Christ, that vocation that has us constantly going back to the interior life so that we might better understand 
the external world and life we are called to live in it. It's this constant back and forth, that interplay between the contemplative and the active that we are to dialogue with each and every day. Because when it is all said and done with, this is what Paul is after. Now, in this chapter, he is after something else, an understanding of theology of the body, because, well, I should say not only in chapter 6, but also in chapter 7, we begin to tap into the importance of the body. And in the light of this, I want to tap into the wisdom of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. You can go to my archives on Special Topic Thursday to really get into my treatment of theology of the body, and there I very much draw from Christopher West. And so what I want to do is just in a soundbite summarize what theology of the body is all about, especially as it pertains to some of the subject matter we are going to get into over the next few chapters. John Paul II, in his Letter to the Families, paragraphs 19, 20, and 21, I think offers up a very important overview, if you will, of what it is all about. He says this, We are facing an immense threat to human life, not only to the life of individuals, but also to that of civilization itself. We live in a society which is sick and is creating profound distortions in man. Why is this happening? John Paul II asked. The reason is that our society has broken away from the full truth about man, from the truth about what man and woman really are as persons. So anthropology, essentially, huh? John Paul II continues. Thus, it cannot adequately comprehend the real meaning of the gift of persons in marriage, responsible love at the service of fatherhood and motherhood, and the true grandeur of procreation. This is the real drama. The modern means of social communication are falsifying the truth about man. Human beings are not the same thing as the images proposed by advertising and shown by the modern mass media. They are much more, John Paul II says, in their physical and spiritual unity, as composites of soul and body, as persons. They are much more because of their vocation to love, which introduces them as male and female into the realm of the great mystery. John Paul II concludes, but the deep-seated roots of the great mystery have been lost in the modern way of looking at things. The great mystery is threatened in us and all around us. So here, John Paul II sketched an outline from the war being waged in the modern world over what it means to be what, my friends? Human. For John Paul II, it's a cosmic contest for man's soul with the battlefield being the body. The battlefield is man's own vision of himself as male and female and his understanding of how as male and female he is to love. Interestingly, when Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI became Pope in 2005, we can certainly say that the cultural crisis was significantly worse than it was the time of John Paul II's election in 1978. What was his response? Well, early in his pontificate, really Benedict asserted that it was his mission as Pope not to necessarily issue a bunch of new documents, 
but to ensure that the teaching of his predecessor, John Paul II, was assimilated by the church, more specifically, integrated right by the church. So not surprisingly, Pope Benedict's first encyclical, Deus Caritas as God is Love, offered a beautiful continuation, and we can even say crowning, of John Paul II's theology of the body. In his own words, and certainly with his own style, Benedict XVI reflected at length on the integral relationship between divine love, agape, that sacrificial love, and the love between the sexes, eros, the human love, and how integrating the two is essential if the church is to be a credible witness in this modern world to the God who is love. So in the light of that, let us turn to paragraph 2332 of the Catechism. This is not only an important paragraph for this discussion, but it was certainly an important paragraph for John Paul II that came from the heart of John Paul II. So paragraph 2332 reads as follows. Sexuality affects all aspects of the human person in the unity of his body and soul. It especially concerns affectivity, the capacity to love and procreate, and in a more general way, the aptitude for forming bonds of communion with others. Consequently, John Paul II affirmed, sexuality is by no means something purely biological, but concerns the innermost being of the human person as such. So a person's sexuality, therefore what we can properly call his maleness, his masculinity, or femaleness, her femininity, in some way it's constitutive of the person. This means simply, my friends, our sexuality is not merely one aspect of our humanity. Rather, our sexuality illuminates the very essence of our humanity as men and women made in the divine image. Brothers and sisters, for every human being is by nature a sexual being. And as John Paul II highlights in his work, Love and Responsibility, membership of one of the two sexes means that a person's whole existence has a particular orientation. And in turn, this orientation towards the other, which he, of course, calls the sexual urge. An urge that is to never be understood or reduced to just an occasion of sin. Rather, now listen to what John Paul II has to say here, an urge that acts as a vector of aspiration along which our whole existence develops and perfects itself from within. So here we should probably hit the pause button to appreciate some of, of the dynamism of John Paul II's words. And we can first do so in the light of complementarity. What does the word complementarity mean? Complementarity is a word that we apply to many different things. We think about complementary colors. What are complementary colors? Complementary colors are colors that bring out each other to its best advantage. Huh? We can also think about complementary within the context of the world in its sea and land. Why do you think, my friends, that beachfront property is so expensive, the most expensive property in the whole world. Could it be that we are pining for something so deep, 
something that is just not outside of us, but inside of us? What do I mean? When you watch a wave crash upon a rock, what do you see? But what is properly feminine, life-giving in water, crashing against what is properly masculine, sturdy, strong in the rock. My dear friends, why are we so drawn to the crashing of the wave up against the rock? Could it have something to do with what is properly feminine in the water and properly masculine in the rock? And there's something that we are connected to when we see the two colliding. Does this not have something to do with who we are? We have to appreciate that what we see in the natural world can help us better understand not only the supernatural world, but how we are to reflect that in our bodies. It's something that is inside of us. What would the land be without water? What would the water be without land? My dear friends, land and water are complementary. They have this attribute of being masculine and feminine. And as such, we are drawn to it. We long for it. And the summit of the crashing between the water and the rock is what? Well, it's something that is inside of us. Our desire for the same kind of crashing, if you will. What am I talking about? But the conjugal act of love, right? We were at the beach recently, and my five-year-old son turns to me and says, gosh, dad, it's almost like a bomb went off. Well, what are you talking about? <laughs> he says, well, that wave against the rock. And I thought, gosh, he'll never know it. But that was quite profound. Why? Because basically he heard in his mind's eye an explosion, an explosion. How do we describe two becoming one? But that which is explosive, that which is creative. Now, for some of you out there, you might be thinking to yourself, is it right to be even talking about this? Well, of course it is, especially when you consider the two becoming one and how in the sacramentality of our bodies, we have this constant pointing towards the other. Now, as John Paul II just noted, it's just not about the sexual urge. It's so much more than that. That's just, as John Paul II would put it, the raw material, right, that has us oriented towards other. The crescendo is, well, agape, that sacrificial love. We speak of two becoming one, and when we do, we can put it in the context of how we as male and female donate our flesh, can we not put that same phrase and insert it into the context of love, the sacrificial gift, where we donate our flesh? Isn't this what marriage is about? The sacrifice, the sacrum fice? The moment we donate our flesh, we become more holy. Again, remember, the word sacrifice in its Latin compound sacrum fice literally translates to make holy. The more we donate our flesh, we are made holy. We experience that on a very raw level in the two becoming one, but also 
on a whole other level when we give ourselves totally and entirely sacrificially in marriage. Certainly, Paul is very, very mindful of this. We have to remember that the Greek word for mystery is mysterion. Mysterion. The Latin rendering of mysterion is sacramentum. Sacramentum. Why is John Paul II here talking about the great mystery? Well, he's echoing Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 32, that the great mystery is also a great sacramentum, a great sacrament, where two becoming one are a sign of Christ's own love for his church, of Christ's own love for his church. Paul, my friends, has a very theological mind. He wants us thinking practically, yes, but he wants us to understand, as I've noted before, the unity between what is theological is properly practical. Okay. All right. So in the end, we are to appreciate that uh, who we are as male and female points to something so much greater than we can ever imagine. And as I only touch upon a few points, I can only hope that it has you desiring to go deeper. You can, again, go to my archives or you can read John Paul II's Wednesday Audiences, Theology of the Body. Do what you will, but do. (laughs) Go there. Appreciate the importance of Theology of the Body and what Paul is after. All right, with that, let us go to chapter 6, verses 7 to 11. To have lawsuits at all with one another is defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that even your own brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. And in the Spirit of God. Okay, so here in verses 9 to 10, we have a catalog really of 10 vices radically inconsistent with Christian morality. Paul lists them to remind the Corinthians of their former habits and certainly to dissuade them from slipping back into their old pagan ways. These sins for Paul destroy all hope of sharing in God's kingdom. How about verse 9 here? Nor homosexuals. We should translate this in the Greek. Very important, I think, today as we have a heightened sensitivity to homosexuality. The RSV condensed two Greek terms into the single English word homosexual. The first term could be rendered male prostitute, and the second male homosexual. The context here, my friends, makes it clear that Paul is thinking not of persons merely attracted to others of the same sex, but of those who engage in perverse sexual acts with them. Certainly, both Testaments agree that homosexual conduct is gravely disordered and poses a serious threat to eternal salvation. If you were to go to Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, Paul's pastoral epistle to Timothy, 
1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, you can see that there. So important to highlight what the actual Greek says. How about verse 11? Such were some of you. Here, Paul wants us to see that once prisoners in sin, the Corinthians have been redeemed and renewed by the washing of baptism. The point is that God's grace and forgiveness can rescue even the worst sinners from their deadly habits. We have this kind of threefold movement in verse 11, a washed, sanctified, justified. We should probably say not movements as much as effects, effects of what? Baptism, through which sinners are cleansed of guilt, made holy, and adopted as heirs of eternal life. The added mention of Christ's name and the work of the Spirit makes it certain that Paul's alluding to baptism as the sacramental context for the Corinthians' conversion. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Remember the word justified means uh, uprightness, holiness. You are made upright. You are made holy. This is a huge affirmation. St. Joseph was what? Just. The word justified or just is the only virtue that describes St. Joseph. And we are talking about the saint of all saints, right? The adopted father of Jesus Christ. So being justified and living justly is to have this most noble uprightness, which is to live in the presence of God. Huh? Okay, we are out of time. If you have any questions, comments, and any observations about today's program and anything about the Christian and Catholic faith, please do not hesitate to email me. You know, we are in the season of Lent right now, and I know I have received a number of questions regarding the practices of Lent, and just not from the Catholic Church's perspective, but just more generally what it means to give something up. So if you want to talk about that, that's great. I think uh, on Thursday... We are going to talk about the role of the Pope and its biblical foundations. I'm also thinking that I'm going to address some questions as they regard Lent. I've been noting that some of the questions I respond to will have context particular to uh, the time we are in. And right now we are in the season of Lent, so I think it'll be good to talk about that. Again, all questions are fair game. All right, so let's close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening. An evening that has been given to us to reflect into uh, theology of the body, for sure, lay the foundation, but also uh, this call we have to live profoundly in your very life and love that we might reflect that in all that we do. And as always, we pray through the intercession of Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.